Well, good evening, Claremont Bible Chapel. Uh, Sam, if you could throw that uh, slide up there for me. So it was requested this morning that I show a little bit of a breakdown, I guess, of how I go about um, breaking up the portion myself before I study. And um, I only included the first couple portions because that's what I'm going through. But if you, uh, actually I bring it up on my phone, it might be easier for me instead of turning it around. Uh, so you could see I, I have, I'll have a theme for the book that says, Godly Living, Considering the Coming of the Lord, uh, the purpose of Paul's writing to praise and encourage the saints in the light of the second coming. Um, I'll label it through introduction. Uh, then I have this idea of thanksgiving, history, and joy for the Thessalonians. Uh, goes from the first chapter all the way to the end of the third chapter. And then it breaks down even further uh, with chapter one being this giving thanks and praise for a strong testimony. And then this section B goes from uh, chapter two, verse one, all the way to the end of chapter three. Um, and then I take my portion that I've been given and I break it down even further. So if you can go to the next slide, Sam. Um, and when I break it down, I kind of go the verses that I'm gonna take at a time. And that way you're getting it in the way that I take it in. There's nothing special to it. Uh, you can break the chapter down in a number of different ways. Uh, you don't have to do it these ways, but if you, I do it based on essentially the grammar of the chapter. Uh, so if you were to look at chapter two, you would see there's a lot of for, but, for, nor, for, so, and Paul is kind of coupling these ideas together. And so if you just look at the grammar itself, it kind of helps you in the breakdown. That's how I do it. Other people do it based on um, pictures or metaphors that Paul is using. So this is just an example. Uh, someone thought it would be helpful. I don't know if it is um, for you guys, uh, but this is my process and how I go about organizing it and then bringing it to you. So you can go ahead and take it off. So we're gonna break in again in 1 Thessalonians chapter two and verse 13. <clears throat> And what we had this morning was this uh, reminder of really how Paul came to the Thessalonians and all that was involved in his being there and the rumors that had started afterwards. So Paul is essentially trying to set the record straight and what we get as down the line in this reading of the scripture is a real insight into the heart of a minister of the gospel, the heart of the Apostle Paul and what he intended when he arrived to speak to these people that he'd never met before. Uh, after being mistreated so harshly in Philippi and then arriving in Thessalonica, uh, having causing problems there, uh, having Jason dragged out of his house and uh, we see that brought before the courts and then Paul ushered out at night and now he is being maligned behind his back by these people of Jewish descent that not only followed him to Thessalonica, but then will follow him to Berea, and then will follow him to Athens. Uh, so he's developing these uh, followers that aren't followers of him spiritually, but are just simply following him to try to tear down the ministry uh, that Paul is establishing through the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this portion <clears throat> from 13 to 20, he discusses their conversion and the opposition that they faced. <clears throat> so we're going to go ahead and read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. 
it says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Again, this is a very intimate uh, letter that the apostle is writing. Uh, he really pours out his heart to the people. And it, you can imagine being a parent and being separated from your child and somebody coming alongside and saying that, you know, your parent doesn't really love you, your parent doesn't really care for you, that he, he, he's not around, she's not around when you need them. You're suffering all of these things. You're going through all of these things. And where are they? They've taken off. They're gone. They're not here. And you can imagine having one opportunity to basically to write them a letter to try to convince them that that's not the case, that you do love them, that you do care for them. And so you, trying to imagine really the, um, the mind of the apostle as he's thinking of these things, these are the terms that he's expressed it in as a mother, as a father. Um, and we'll see that, that that kind of idea or metaphor continues in this portion we're going to look at tonight. But just to get a, uh, an idea of what's really going on, we don't face this type of persecution here in the United States, so it is hard for us to imagine uh, this situation, but this was a very real thing um, for the apostle at the time, and it still is around the world. So it begins with this idea of for this reason, and when you see like a for this reason, you always ask yourself, is for this reason addressing what came before, what I read before, or is it about to address what comes after? And the language will bear it out. It'll say, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because. So the reason is because of what he's about to say. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. And so Paul is always very careful with his language, obviously, through the Holy Spirit, not to give credit uh, to the wrong person or group of people and to make sure everyone gets what is, is the task that they are doing. So when he says this, he talks about, it says, when you received, and this reception has this very formal feel to it. Um, so they were formally received, as you would perhaps greet somebody into your home, and you say, please come into my home, and can I offer you a refreshment? It's very formal. Um, he continues, and he makes this statement, the word of God which you heard from us. So it's the word of God from us. It's not our word, but it's from us. It's God's word. And then he continues, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, 
but as it is in truth the word of God. He makes a statement that you received it formally, but that you also embraced it. You welcomed it in an affectionate way. Uh, so somebody comes into your house that you know and you give them a hug, you give them a kiss on the cheek, it's very different than please come in, sit down. He's saying that at first it was a please come in, sit down, but then there was this very welcoming uh, feel to it, a very affectionate feel to it. And he also explains that he gave it as the word of God from the, from the apostle and his team, and they received it as it is in truth, the word of God, not of men. So there's this real plain picture that Paul is making that none of this is really our own doing. We have to be obedient and faithful with what God has given us, but it is a stewardship that we are basically receiving from God and seeking to give to someone else, and it is their responsibility to then hear it as the word of God and to receive it as their own. This isn't something that I force upon somebody. This isn't something that uh, I can manipulate in a certain way. Because many times today, you see what Satan has done is confuse all of these things. To where he says, you know, the world would say today, well, you know, you may be saying this from the word of God, but this other person over there says this from the word of God. It, they take it as, well, one's coming from this man and one's coming from this man. And Paul's saying, no, mine comes from God. And now the apostle had, obviously, when we think of the apostleship just briefly, the apostle did have special privilege that we do not have today, in a sense that he visibly saw the risen Lord, received him, his commission direct from the Lord, was given an apostolic authority that basically what he wrote and what he penned became scripture through the spirits you know, moving. So what he said went, in a way. Uh, we don't have that authority, but we have the written word, and we stand on this apostle's doctrine. And in that same vein, we have the ability to say our message comes directly from God. Uh, it's not the same as the apostle Paul had it, but it has the same impact. So he makes this statement. <clears throat> How do we know that it effectively works in them that believe? How are we able to bear that out? He continues, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Just a quick word on that word, brethren. We kind of gloss over that. It's a familiar term to all of us, and we read over it in a way. But you have to imagine Paul, a Jew, speaking to a mainly Gentile group of people and this idea of family when there was such hatred for one another. Uh, you can imagine uh, you know, something like this being written during the Civil War where there's a, a white and a black and there's this idea of brotherhood in Christ with a group that is fighting a war in a country over these things. So it has a very strong sense that didn't really exist at the time in the world at that, in that day. And I can remember in my own life, the moment I got saved, I was introduced to Brother Doug Dixon. And Doug immediately, no, no hesitancy, no second guessing, he just said, welcome to the family, brother. And he gave me a hug. And like we don't like I don't hug people normally, you know that's not a that's not a thing, especially guys. Like I'm not a big you know dude. Hey, let's give a hug. Uh, 
but it had such an impact on me, it felt so real, more real than anything I had really experienced. And Doug didn't know me at all, really. But yet the, he, I realized that all of a sudden with this man that I don't even know, there is this bond that you know, we'll be together. Like we're in, like we're family. Like there's no separating us now. You can't get away from me, uh, this idea. So as Paul's writing this, this is the mentality that he's trying to express to these people. And we can assume that when they read that, it probably would have had the same impact that it had on me when I first heard it. This idea that we're family, like we're in it together. So he makes this statement in verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the church, churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Um, now, what's interesting in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 6, it says, You became followers or imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So there, there's this interesting thing of this imitation that's taking place. So as they became imitators and followers of the Lord Jesus, as they went and their church is modeling after those churches that are in Judea, we assume that they wouldn't have had a lot of contact. We assume that there would have been very little contact, but that Paul is establishing these things of what took place in Judea. And we see that this is something that ties them all together. So as they become imitators of the churches of Judea, the same in that region because they're living out, they have become those that others imitate in Macedonia. The question I have this evening, and it's interesting that the whole week of prayer uh, you know, time has come up. If a group that had no gospel testimony were to have gotten saved and attended our meeting here, what would they see as the things to imitate? What would they carry back? Now, it's one thing for individuals to follow an imitation and to do the things that an individual does. So in the chapter one, there's this very strong emphasis of these individuals became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, being willing to suffer, being willing to go through, being willing to name the name of Christ. But as a full meeting, as a full family that gathers together, what identifies them? When you think about that for our assembly, they're here, say, for a month. Say they're here, say they're here six months at the busy time. Let's say from Christmas all the way up until the end of the spring conference. All of the programs, all of the kids, the outreach to the neighborhood, all the hard work, all the different saints that put so much time and effort into everything that goes on here. People that get no credit, but faithfully do it every week. People that are not compensated and faithfully do it every week. People that, when, when somebody is hurting, you, you, you make an announcement, you make everybody aware that we could all seek to encourage an individual, a family that's struggling. What can we do? You see a lot of wonderful things here. You see a group of people that is willing to welcome somebody into a family, and you become one of us, and we pray for you, and we minister to you, and we love you, and there's this, this bond that 
wow, these people, they like to be together, and they have all these times when they organize themselves so they can be together. You see so many wonderful things. But there is one thing that I think would be missing if a church was imitating us. And I think that thing would be prayer. We work really hard. We love each other. We get along great. But I think the thing that they would walk away from us saying is maybe they think they could do it all on their own. Or maybe they think that God doesn't really want to talk to them today. You can think of my life with Kathy. If I did everything for Kathy, um, what was always there, what was, was kind and made sure all the I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed, that, you know, say I did the laundry, say I did the dishes, say I cooked all the meals, say I did all these things, but I never wanted to talk to her. That would seem strange, because it is strange, when really the times that Kathy and I enjoy the most and really feel the closest is just when we happen to wake up early one morning, and it's five o'clock in the morning, and it's a Saturday, and the kids are asleep, and we're kind of both awake, and we just talk about nothing, and we just have a conversation. And it lasts maybe two, two and a half hours, 7.30, comes along. Those are the times that we think of when we think of the time when we're happy. It's a weird thing. And we're doing nothing. I'm not making her coffee. I'm not making her breakfast. I'm not buying her something. I'm not uh, going over the top. I'm not having this big plan of what I'm going to do, an organization. Uh, it's just kind of a simple thing, a very intimate thing. And if we're made in the image of God, we can assume that God desires the same thing. So just, like I say, I find it no coincidence that with the week of prayer coming up, with the opportunity to be here, with the, this passage coming up, this idea of imitation of a church, of a group that gathers together, just to reflect on these things. You guys may come up with more um, things that the, uh, another church would see as imitation, um, but not only as an individual, but as a whole body. So that was just something that came to mind. It's not easy to share because there's so much going on here that's so great. The best thing in my life after getting saved was having a place like this to come to. You know, people were always interested in the fact that I had been saved so little time, but yet I had grown so much. And it's like, well, what did you do? And I tell them, I didn't do anything. All these people did it. So when you think of the opportunities that you have to minister to people, it's one thing. But what we see with the Apostle Paul here in verse 13 was that they thank God without ceasing. There's this idea that Paul has come to the church in Thessalonica, has left the church, and every day since has thought about them and has praised God for this, has thanked God for this. In our own hearts, we think of how happy that would be to make God. You know, I, when, when my boys get along and, and Noah comes in the room and it's like, I helped Benji do this, or, you know, Benji wanted this, so I got it for him. And there's this idea that they're, they're getting along or they're, they're one together. And it's like, if he told me that every day, it would never get old. It would never get old. So just a, just a thought on this portion of being imitators. What's interesting is that they became imitators in such a way and they suffered in the same way. 
sometimes we would be imitators in things that only were a benefit to us. These people were imitators in everything so that they even suffered in a similar way as the churches in Judea. So it's one thing for us to have this mindset of we're going to be like another church somewhere else that is very successful. We're going to try to employ the similar tactics. It would be another thing to say, you know, this church is growing and is doing well, and they've employed these, tac these tactics, but they're really being looked at by the government. Uh, the neighbors are kind of protesting outside. Uh, there's accusations going back and forth from, from the outside in. People are losing jobs. Um, we're going to do it anyway. That would be a totally different idea, right? So there's this idea that they became imitators even in the suffering. In verse it says, For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. And now this, this next verse is, it is controversial, but it, it doesn't have to be. It says, Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. We see that there's, there's, there's five things that have taken place. They killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. Um, they're persecuting the apostles. They do things that displease God, and they forbid the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles that they would be saved. <clears throat> Today, if you were to make the statement that the Jewish people killed Jesus, it would seem very anti-Semitic. And the reason it seems very anti-Semitic is because that idea has been used to persecute and to physically go after the nation of Israel and to seek to exterminate them from the earth. That is not what Paul is saying. I don't know how people throughout time have gotten so confused. Uh, we assume that it's simply a work of the devil, that uh, the devil manipulates these things and uses it to, to his own working. But basically, he, we know that we as well bear responsibility for the death of the Lord Jesus because of our sins. We know that Rome bears responsibility for the death of the Lord Jesus because they did not free him. He was unjustly tried and, and led away in an unjust fashion. But Paul, in this portion, Peter, in his, in his sermon to uh, those in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem themselves, even in Matthew 27, where they say, let this man's blood be on us and our children, they take a very firm position in the responsibility of the death of the Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying. They killed their Messiah. So... These aren't people that are persecuting in a, oh, you know, we can deal with it way. They're persecuting in a way where they killed people for things like this. Uh, Paul is probably even thinking of Stephen at this time. Um, Stephen out there proclaiming the gospel and Paul holding the clothes of those men that would grab stones and stone him to death. So he makes a statement that these people that are antagonizing him the same way the Judeans were antagonized... Um, that they killed the Lord Jesus, they killed their own prophets, uh, and that's obviously in the Gospels a lot. The Lord brings that up a lot, this idea that they killed their prophets. Uh, they've persecuted us. We see the persecution in this epistle. We see it in the book of Acts, this continual persecution from the Jewish people, like I said, to follow the Apostle Paul around and try to prevent the spread of the Gospel. 
And that's what he makes the statement. They do not please God and are contrary to all men. They're just against everybody. Like they, they, they only, they're only caring for themselves. And in that selfish way, they're not pleasing God. So in verse 16, it says that they're forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And it says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And the interesting thing with that word wrath is the scholars, these textual scholars that do this for a living, cannot figure out if this is a present, past, or future tense of this word, which is interesting. So presently at the time, if this was written, um, you know, say 51 or whatever, you would have had this famine that had taken place in Jerusalem and Judea. Um, from 47 to 48, this great famine. That's why Paul's gathering funds and sending them to Jerusalem. They'd experience this great famine. There was this uh, uh, death of these individuals in Jerusalem in the temple courtyard in 49. So it could have been this idea of this massacre that took place. It could also be with a view towards what would happen in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian comes. It could be with a view towards what happens at the end times. This idea that these people keep heaping up sins that God will have to deal with one day. When we think about people that reject the gospel, the reason why we need to pray for these people, because the more and more they reject the gospel, the more and more they heap up these things on top of themselves. This constant rejection. And when we pray for people that have heaped up, we are asking on the mercy of God to give them another opportunity to receive the gospel. Because it does seem that there's a point in the scripture that speaks of people that have reached a point that is beyond reaching. And so it's incumbent upon us to continue to pray for them. So this is, this is Paul's desire. He's not, he's not attacking the Jewish people in a way that he, he's writing this almost in a very saddened way. When you think of a man that has such a heart that in Romans he says, if I could suffer in hell for all eternity that they would be saved, I would do it. And you think of a guy that knew what he was talking about when he said that. He didn't say it flippantly. So Paul means this out of um, a heart of love for not only the Thessalonian people, not only the churches in Judea, but also the Jews that are antagonizing. Uh, he, he doesn't uh, take joy in writing these things that these people are heaping up sins upon themselves. Like I, like I say, it's, it's kind of a difficult portion. We don't uh, think about it too often, but uh, it, it is in the scripture and it needs to be addressed. In verse 17, it says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you, your face with great desire. Uh, this idea, he mentions brethren again, so there's this idea of unity again that he's bringing forward this idea of family, and I think the reason he's bringing this idea is this word that is used for having been taken away uh, is this ver like word that's used for being orphaned. So it's as if your child has been ripped away from you and now is away from you. And you think about that, if somebody were to take one of my kids away, there wouldn't be a day that would go by that I wouldn't think about my kids. Um, but yet there's this, there's this strong familial tone that Paul is establishing in this chapter to try to get us to understand how much Paul cares for these people. So this idea of being ripped apart or being orphaned. Uh, it says, for a short time in presence, so they're away right now, 
distance-wise, but not in heart. So Paul's always thinking about these people. Uh, can we say the same thing? For me, if you are out of sight, unfortunately, you probably are out of mind. That's why I need to be at every meeting. I need to be at everything we have here. Because for a moment, if I'm not here, if I'm doing something else, if I'm somewhere else, I'm focused on what I'm doing at that time. Uh, it's a shame on me. You know, I should be thinking about everyone all the time. Uh, unfortunately, I don't. So just to, if, if I struggle with it, maybe somebody else out there struggles with it, uh, we need to be more others-minded. Um, what it says, if you're out of sight, out of mind, is I'm only thinking about what I'm going through at that specific time. I'm not really concerned with what you're going through at that specific time. And I need to be more concerned about what you're going through at that specific time. So this idea of being others-minded would apply in this idea of prayer. So the, the, the reason we would assume that Paul is able to keep these people at the front of his mind is because he prays for them all the time. Uh, it's hard to get somebody out of your mind that you pray for every day. It's just the way it works. So he makes this, this idea that, uh, that, that throw away a short time and that he endeavors more eagerly to see your face with great desire, that the, far, the longer he's away, the more the desire grows to see them. It's not something that's diminishing. Verse 18, therefore we want to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul is a part of this team, and this team has gone to Thessalonica and experienced all these things. And so Paul is really writing this on behalf of all of these people, and he takes this moment to single himself out to emphatically say how much he as an individual wants to see them. So they wanted to come time and again, but Satan hindered us. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't go into detail. He doesn't explain what that is, how that happened. And to be honest, I, I have no idea. Um, not even in Acts does it explain why they couldn't go back. So I'm not going to get into why, but uh, we see that Paul is able to discern that this is the work of Satan that's hindering him from going back. Now, you could see in other portions uh, when Paul is before Paul goes into um, Greece and, and into this area of Macedonia, that it says the Spirit prevented him from going. That there's this idea that you know this is this is the Lord preventing me from going, not necessarily Satan. So Paul is able to discern these things, and we assume again with much prayer. Um, we can also probably assume that the Thessalonians knew what he was talking about when he said this. So that's why some people have made so many suggestions on on what it might be. I don't know. But Satan was hindering them. In verse 19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Uh, so interesting, interesting thing to say. Um, you might look at it and say, that, oh, that kind of seems out of place. W what is he talking about? We have to remember, he's talking about his great desire to see them. And so what is he saying? He says, what is our hope, joy, or crown of rejoicing? What is more important to me right now than seeing you people? Nothing. It's everything. It'd be everything if I could go see you. My, my hope, my joy, my crown, it would, be like, it would be like winning the race, getting the crown, experience all the, the, the joy and glory that goes along with that victory of finally achieving this goal that I've set out to accomplish. And we think of an athlete, nothing more 
focused on their mind than achieving that goal, that victory at the very end, lifting up the trophy or having the wreath put on their head. So when he's making this statement, it, it isn't like it's coming out of nowhere. He's asking them, uh, you know, we assume rhetorically, you know, what is my joy? And they're probably like, oh, I don't know. What are you talking about, Paul? But when he continues, they, they understand, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So this idea of, is it not even you, specifically the Thessalonians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are, uh, present tense, our glory and joy. You are the thing that makes us look good. You are the thing that makes us happy. When you think about all that Paul is trying to express, you really think about a parent and their, their love for a, ch a child and all that they would be trying to express. If a child were to feel like a parent doesn't love them, there's this idea that the parent would have this great desire for them to understand that there is nothing more important than them being with the child, than them having the opportunity to um, hug and be around and fellowship with this child. And Paul is saying all that's been taken away. All, that, all that's been separated, and I know it's hard, and I know you're suffering, and I know you're imitating and you're going on and you're facing great opposition, but I exhort you as a father, you keep on going. And he charges them that you keep on going. You keep on, don't, don't stop, don't let these people deter you, don't let these people distract you, you keep on going. And so you may be in a time in your walk where you just need to grit it and keep on going. And, and it may be suffering, it may be hard, it, it may be all of these things, but we're here as a family to help one another, to encourage one another, to make sure that we can all keep on going. And it's not to be a self-centered thing. We see that the greatest benefit comes when you help somebody else to achieve these things. As the Apostle Paul is writing these letters to First and Second Thessalonians, it, it's interesting that he mentions the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ 24 times in eight chapters. So... Believe it or not, that is the most amount of times in all of the New Testament in a given portion. So in Acts, for example, it's mentioned 17 times. You think how big Acts is in 28 chapters. And you think of Romans, it's mentioned 16 times. So in these little eight chapters of First and Second Thess Thessalonians, you have this big emphasis on the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes sense that so much of the speech is due to his second coming, but before Paul gets to answering the questions, before he gets to straightening out the, the ideas that they had on the second coming, he wants to make sure that they understand how much he cares for them. And so as a parent, one, a friend, another, a brother and sister in Christ, an elder uh, in the church, a leader in a ministry, the most important thing you can convey to somebody before you get into what they need to do and what they need to know is how much you care for them. And if you don't start there, they recognize it too. And it only makes it easier for someone down the line to come alongside and say, that person doesn't really care for you. That person doesn't really want anything to do with you. They just do it out of habit or rote. So just a, a couple things to think about as we, we close this, uh, this chapter of First Thessalonians chapter two. The heart of Paul as a minister is one. Uh, if a church were to be imitating us, what would they imitate? What do we need to work on? Um, this, this familial bond that's been established where being separated from them is like being ripped away from your own family, your, your child. 
do we have that same bond from one another? If we are out of sight, are we out of mind? And, and I think the answer to many of these things is prayer uh, with one another. So we, we have this opportunity with a week of prayer coming up. Uh, we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night uh, just to come together and pray. When you think about it in the grand scheme of things, for a week to come together as a family on a Wednesday night just to talk to God, it'll seem a very strange thing that we passed it up when we get to heaven and see him. So uh, I encourage you all to, to come out and to, to be with us uh, in our times of prayer. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, just for your word this evening. We understand that uh, it comes from you, Father, and it comes from you to us in a way that would help us, encourage us, strengthen us. Um, Father, we recognize the love of Paul for the Thessalonians because we recognize the love that our Savior has for us, um, his heart for us, his desire for us. And Father, we know that in our own lives it's easy to get uh, um, self-centered. It's easy to focus only on the things that we're going through. Uh, we, we have a, a, a brother and sister in this chapel that need, need our help, that need our encouragement. And so, Father, we do lift up uh, the family this evening. Uh, we pray for them that you would give us wisdom uh, in how to love and care for them, uh, that they would understand the love and the care that we have for them, and that there would be this, this strong familial bond, Father, that is only because of your son and what you've done um, to us through him. Uh, we just pray. Father, that we could be those that love one another, that these areas in which maybe we are uh, struggling, uh, that we would be strengthened and that they would become our strength and not a weakness. Uh, we ask this in your power and in your strength through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.